I was just reminded that we're in Paul's second missionary journey. You know, we're, we're entering the door today of, of Acts chapter 17. And we're what we've been walking through the book of Acts. That's what we do here. We walk through uh, a book of the Bible. We, we preach through verse by verse. And we, it's, an, it's an expository way of digging in Scripture. And that's just the way we do it. And so we have been in Acts for quite a while. We're in chapter 17, at least starting today. And when we, as we open this door up in chapter 17, Paul and Silas and Timothy have left Philippi. Philippi is on the, on the west side of the Aegean Sea, and they've left Philippi, and they actually left Luke there. Uh, after, and they left after being beaten and thrown in jail. They'd suffered through all, all kind of pain. They had had their feet shackled together. But through all of that, they, they sung praises to the Lord and they brought glory to his name. That gets us right up to the beginning of chapter 17. And so I, wanna, I want us to read through. We're going to be in the first 15 verses of chapter 17 today. It's going to be on the screen up, up behind me. And hopefully you've got a worship guide if you don't. Raise your hand. We want to get one to you because the, the passage is in there as well. And we're going to kind of be all over these first 15 verses today. Uh, so you, you probably need that uh, in front of you. So let me jump into it. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. That's what I told y'all to do. Reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy, to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So I want to hone in on verse 6. I want to really hone in on verse 6. The folks in Thessalonica, 
they use some interesting language in describing Paul and Silas. At the end of that verse, at the end of verse 6, the latter part of it, they, uh, uh, Luke writes that these folks, these officials, these authorities, they said these guys have turned the world upside down and now they're here like yikers, they're here. I'm going to tell you it's, a, it's an amazing thing that anyone would have such an effect on culture, on society, that folks would say they turned the world upside down. For most of us, the world doesn't even know that we exist. But for these guys, the ways that they made flipped things upside down. The word had already traveled the 100 miles. It's about 100 miles from Philippi to, to Thessalonica. And they went through Amphipolis and Apollonia. But it's about 100 miles southwest to, to Thessalonica. And they're like, the troublemakers are here. The rabble-rousers are here. Well, let me tell you, these guys, Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, even Luke in Philippi, they mattered. Believers matter. They made a difference. You make a difference. And you know, God has always had these kind of guys in his quiver. Y'all know what a quiver is, don't you? Like, I love the word. A quiver is the thing that you wear on your back to pull an arrow out, holds arrows, and you pull it out to shoot it. God has always had these kind of men in his quiver, guys that made waves, guys that, that upset the devil's apple cart. Elijah. Elijah was one of those dudes. Elijah turned stuff upside down everywhere that he went. He's always hassling Ahab and Jezebel. And Ahab and Jezebel were really two bad folks. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Ahab saw Elijah and he said, Ahab said to Elijah, he said, is that you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah said, it ain't me, brother. It's you. It's you and it's your kin people. You're the ones that have thrown God's word to the curb. You're the ones that booted it out. You're the ones that followed false gods. Elijah was a truth teller. Elijah spoke the truth. He said, you're the ones that is, that's messing everything up. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah was another one, troublemaker. He wreaked a little havoc himself, but he spoke the truth. You know, darkness hates light. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 38. He shocks Israel, Jeremiah does, when he tells them this. starts in verse 2 of Jeremiah 38. The Bible says, thus says the Lord, he, and this is Jeremiah speaking for the Lord. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. So Jerusalem, he's talking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about to get hammered. The bad guys are coming. Verse 3 says, thus says the Lord, The city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. And y'all know this is God saying this through Jeremiah. Verse 4 says, Then the officials said to the king, let this man, talking about Jeremiah, let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but he's seeking their harm. So the boss people there are saying, we got to kill him. we got to kill him because he's ruining the morale of the soldiers. No, Jeremiah's speaking the truth. They just don't want to hear the truth. Darkness hates light. People want their ears tickled. Jeremiah's not going to tickle ears. Amos not going to tickle ears. Isaiah's not going to tickle ears. Honestly, I'm not going to tickle ears. 
So he said, I hear you, dog. So, so here, Jeremiah's like, we're, we're, we're these people, it's like they're getting ready to fight, and they say he, Jeremiah, is telling us there's no reason to fight. Because you see, Jeremiah is making waves, and they just want to get rid of him. So God has always had people that made waves by confronting an unjust and immoral and a wicked system and the people that make up that system. So I want to jump, jump back into Acts because here comes Paul. Every time Paul shows up, Paul rocks the boat. Why does he rock the boat? He rocks the boat. Is he a jerk? No, he's not a jerk. He rocks the boat because of what he says. Because of what he says is truth. Look at the accusation, latter part of verse 6 and verse 7. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, if you make waves because you're a jerk, even if you speak the truth, you're just a jerk. But if you make waves because you speak the truth, if you make waves because you have a comprehensive biblical worldview and you speak the truth claims that this book makes, like I hate it for you. I don't know if that's the right thing to say. It's a whole other thing when you speak the truth. Now, you speak the truth in compassion, right? That's what we do. That's what we ought to do. Acts chapter 22, Paul's preaching. He's given some testimony. You know, Paul gives his testimony incrementally all throughout the book of Acts. So here in Acts 22, the Bible says that up to a certain point, the people listened to him. But he crossed the line when he started talking about Jesus. Verse 22 says, Then they raised their voices and these are the people that were listening to him up to the point that he starts talking about the Christ. And they said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. That's a strong statement. Y'all, it's not just throw him out of the city, it's throw him off the planet. Because that's what they said. So this week, I'm reading in Acts 17, and, and I, just got, I just got convicted, I guess. And I'm like, what is it? that makes a guy turn the world upside down. Wave makers like Elijah and Jeremiah, and we could go through tons of Scripture, Amos, Micah, Malachi, just prophet after prophet, and David, all of them. What makes them, and Paul, what's in their DNA? Like, what are the great principles, if any, that permeate their, their ministries? that make them guys that, that Scripture would say turn the world upside down. I believe there's five or six things, five or th six things that are just built into their DNA that are just built into them, five things that define them. We're going to talk about two of those this week. We're going to talk about three, of, three or four of them next week. And y'all, honestly, I don't think I've ever preached um, two messages that, uh, a message that takes two weeks to preach, but we're doing that this week. So, if this is your first time here, please come back next week for part two. And if you're planning on leaving our church, don't leave until two weeks from now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the first one is this, y'all. I want to talk about courage. The early church was marked, identified 
with courage. They were courageous. We see it here in this passage in Thessalonica. We also see it in Berea. Courage and boldness. Look at Acts chapter 20. Verse 22, Paul said this. He said, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. He says, not knowing what will happen to me there. He says, I don't know what's going to happen there. I'm going anyway, but I don't know what's going to happen there. In today's language, we'd say, I'm going, but it probably ain't going to be good. It's it's, it's probably going to be bad. I don't know what's going to happen. He says, and then verse 23, I don't know what's going to happen except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So he trusts the Holy Spirit, does he not? Wouldn't you say Paul trusts the Holy Spirit? So he's going, and he says, more than likely, imprisonment and afflictions are waiting for me. But he goes anyway. Courage is not necessarily a lack of fear. Courage is when there's fear, you do it anyway. In football language, I'm not going to mention any games, but in football language, (laughs) Hank Stram, raise your hand if you know who Hank Stram was. Not many of you. Hank Stram was a coach uh, for the Kansas City Chiefs. Hank Stram is Hank Stram is 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 de- uh, describing the guys on a kickoff team. And if you've ever played football, the collisions on a kickoff are maddening, crushing collisions. And he said the guys that are on the kickoff team don't act like that. They're they're not scared. They are scared, but they do it anyway. He said they're courageous because you have 50-yard heads of steam and you have these collisions. So courage is not a lack of Fear, courage is what's on the other side is more important than the fear that I have right now. That's courage. All throughout Scripture, we see courageous men and women. Paul, courageous. Paul is laser-focused on the gospel, and nothing else can, nothing can knock him off course. He is all in for Jesus. He is, he is undaunted. I want you to hear this now. No one, and, and I mean no one, will ever affect the world for Christ who doesn't have the the courage of his conviction and the courage of his calling. And for sure, you can be convicted of the truth of the gospel and you won't tell anybody about it. And that doesn't do any good. There has to be both. You need the courage of the convictions and the courage to take it to the people around you with compassion but with truth. It's courageous people that make a difference. Look at verse 2, Acts 17, verse 2. Where does it say that Paul went? He went to the synagogue. He always went there first. That was the, the battle plan. That was the battle rhythm. He goes to the synagogue first. What always happened when he went to the synagogue? He gets drilled. There's persecution. He gets hammered. Every single time that he got close to Jews, he'd get persecuted. Why do you think that is? Because in their mind, he's a traitor. What do you think my parents and my family called me? And many of them still to this day, you're a traitor. There's persecution. I'm not saying have some feel sorry for me, but the bottom line is I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because what's on the other side of that cross is much better than what's on the bad side of the cross. And so Paul, Paul goes to the synagogue first. And every time he does that, he gets hammered and he gets persecuted. 
every time he got close to Jews, he'd be, he'd be persecuted and he'd be, he'd be confronted by evil. It happened over and over and over and over and over. Read the Bible. Now, maybe you would think that he would avoid those places. Like, haven't you learned worldly wisdom would say, haven't you learned, Paul, what happens when you go there? Like, my dog Rudy learns faster than you, Paul. Hadn't you learned? Don't go there. Avoid those places. You think about it. He's just coming off of what happened in Philippi, beaten to a bloody pulp, ankles shackled together. You'd think he'd sidestep these potential deals, but not Paul. No, because Paul believed that what he believed was really real. And if you believe that what you believe is really real, it's a game changer. It changes everything. Played out for Paul in the courage to do what God had called him to do. He was laser-focused. When he left Thessalonica and he gets to Berea in verse 10 or 11, where does it say he went? It says he went to the Jewish synagogue. That's where. He was on point. You remember back in Acts chapter 14, Paul is in a place called Lystra in south, sort of central or eastern Galatia. What happened in Lystra? They nearly stoned him to death. They drug him out and dumped him out in front of the city. But he got up. Now, he didn't get up and run to Mama's house and hide in the closet. No, he got up and went to Derby straight away and preached the gospel. It's courageous. He don't play. Like, I want to be courageous like that for the sake of Christ. Not courageous to be on a kickoff team, right? No, courageous for the sake of Christ. I want you to be courageous for him. How can we do that? We got to trust God. We got to repent. And we got to have a, and I'm going to use this phrase and it's cliche, but we got to have an attitude of gratitude. We got to be thankful. We got to trust God. We got to repent, which is a word we don't even hear anymore. Trust God, repent, and be thankful. Be, have have this, this outlook of gratitude. We got to trust Him. Look back in Psalm 27. David, King David wrote this. And it almost sounds like he's, it almost sounds like he's talking to himself and he's reminding himself of, of how awesome that God is, and the words just come, come pouring out of him in verse 1. And you got to imagine now, David has spent a lot of time on the run. You know, Saul's trying to kill him. David's on the run. David's out in the Judean wilderness. And, you know, you don't have ambient light. And so David is looking up at the stars, and if you've ever been a place where there's not any ambient light, the sky looks radically different. And you can see God's handiwork like you just can't see anywhere else. And so David is in creation. And David is, is awestruck by the awesomeness of the God that saved him. And he says this in verse 1. He says, the Lord, this God that placed every single little star exactly where he wanted it to be, this God who breathed life into me, he says, the, the Lord is my light and my salvation. If he's my light and he's my salvation, who am I going to be scared of? I ain't going to be scared of nobody. That's what David is saying. He says, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. And we use that language, that stronghold language, when we talk about all kind of stuff. Alcohol's got a stronghold on me. Crack's got a stronghold on me. Pornography's got a stronghold on me. Well, my stronghold, I need to fix my strongholder. Right? My stronghold doesn't need to be in all that stuff. 
David says, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. And if that's true, who am I going to be scared of? Walk on to the Lord. Let Him be the stronghold of your life. If He's got your back, you don't need to be fearing anything. And the truth claim that Scripture makes, if you are His, He does have your back. And it doesn't mean life's going to be a bed of roses. No, no, no. If you've got an addiction, you've got to fight. But the battle's not yours to fight. The battle's His to fight. Right? Don't try to lead Him. Let Him lead you. David even says in, in verse 2, he says, of this Psalm 27, he says, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. What does that mean? That means when the bad guys are trying to eat me up, when the bad guys are coming after me, my, he says, my adversaries and my foes, it's they who stumble and fall. It is like he's saying, all these people that are after me to devour me, they just fall down in front of me, and I didn't do a thing. God did it all. God's the one that handles it. This whole psalm sounds like this. You get toward the latter part in verse 13. He says, he's, the whole psalm up to that point sounds like what I just read you, verse 1 and 2. And David's, it's almost, there's almost a, a little hint of sarcasm. He says, you know what I believe I'm going to do? I believe I'm just going to look upon the goodness of the Lord. That's like what David said. So the word there says, I'm being attacked. People lying about me, people trying to hunt me down. And here's what I think I do, I'll do. I think I'll reflect on, pray on, meditate on the goodness of the Lord. And, and verse 14 says, wait for the Lord. I love this. Wait for the Lord. And he says, be strong and let your heart take courage. Be strong. Chazak is the Hebrew word. I got a t-shirt, a green t-shirt. Matter of fact, in that little video clip from M2540, I got that T-shirt on. And in Hebrew, it says, Chazak. Be strong. It's the same thing used in Joshua. Be strong and be courageous. That's what he has for us. Wait for the Lord. He says it again. Trust him today. You want to be courageous? Put the trust in him. Because the battle really is his battle. And then repent of the sin in your life. It's a daily battle, man. Scripture says it over and over. Deny self, deny self, deny self. Repent, turn away from the sin. It's tough to enter the fray. It's tough to enter the, the battle with a bunch of known sin, unrepented for sin in your life. If you go out to witness out in the world and you're living a sinful life and you wonder why you get shot down, that is likely that that may be it. In Psalm 7, at the beginning, David, again, crying out to the Lord that he will take refuge in him. He's asking the Lord for deliverance, that the ones after him should not tear him apart like a lion. That's the language that's used. And then in verse 3, he simply says this, Lord, if I got a bunch of sin in my life, got a bunch of sin in my life, then, then I deserve everything that's headed my way. I got a bunch of stuff that I haven't repented for, then I deserve what's coming. But he says, but God, if, you, if we're on the same page, and if you agree that I do love you, and we're on, a, on an even playing field, and there's purity in my life, Lord, then rescue me. He even says in verse 8 of Psalm 7, he says, Judge me, Lord, according to my righteousness and any little bit of integrity that may be in me. He says in verse 12 that it, it, it may be problematic if, if a man doesn't repent and turn away from the sin. It's going to be tough to win the battle and win the fight without leaving 
all of your junk at the cross. I'm telling you, sang about this song, this, this language this morning too, and James talked about it. When he says that your sin is put as far as the east is from the west, when he says your sin is thrown into the abyss, that means never to be seen again. When you repent and you leave it, you leave it at the cross and you, you deny self, forgiveness means it's done. Forgiveness, it means it's done. And it's not, there's such freedom in that. And it's not freedom to sin. What would Paul say about that? Should grace abound because I sin more? No. It's freedom to not sin. And you don't even understand that when you're on the, on the bad side of the cross, when you're on the lost side of the cross. You only realize it after you get saved, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I've never experienced freedom. Read the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's all about freedom in Christ. There is no freedom like freedom in Christ. Repentance is a major piece of that puzzle. And so David says, in verse 17, I'm making a choice, verse 17 of Psalm 7, I'm making a choice to give to the Lord the thanks that he's due, and I'm going to praise his name, and I'm going to sing about him, and I'm going to give him all the glory and all the honor that he's due because he's exactly who he says he is, and he can do exactly what he says he can do. So you trust him, you turn away from the sin, and you have this attitude of gratitude. You have this thankfulness. Do you have any idea what that does for you inside? When you can crank up the, the thankfulness meter a little bit, and you say, Lord, I'm ahead out there, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why am I not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of salvation. So I'm ahead out there, and I'm going to be bold, and I'm going to say what you would have for me to say, and I'm so thankful to you right, right now, in this moment, before I walk out the door. I'm thankful because you've paved the way for me. I'm thankful for the victory that you've already determined that we have when you hung on the cross and said it is finished. I'm empowered personally to walk out the door because of what he did on the cross. Because we win. And I want to live my life like I know we win. If the jihadist has the sickle at my throat, I want to be able to say, slit it, because we win. Not because of anything I did, but because of what happened outside those Jerusalem gates 2,000 years ago when he said it's finished, it's done. Satan is a defeated foe already. Do you all get that? He's just running around trying to eat you while he can. But he's already been defeated. He's lived the last couple thousand years defeated already. So the second thing, first thing, excuse me, courage, foundational, courage. Foundational in being, a, in being someone who can turn the world upside down. But the second thing is this, it is substance. And you're probably like, what's he talking about, substance? Well, you want to turn the world upside down for Christ. You want to make waves for Christ. Not just making waves to make waves, but you want to make waves for Christ. If you do, then you probably ought to be right in what you say. You ought to have the right substance. You ought to have the right stuff. You ought to have the right content. Your words should be truth. The truth claims that you make should be true. 
I mean, don't you realize that you and I, we could display courage and we could be bold to the nth degree and be dead wrong. You could have the faith that you think could move a mountain, strong faith. But if the object of your faith is false, you got nothing. You got no substance. You got no content. You're just in error. And that can happen. Look at the world. You don't, don't try to act like Christians are the only people that have, quote, faith. That's nonsense. Faith is not the virtue. You don't get the crown because of faith. It's because of the object of the faith. Jesus Christ is the object of the faith. We speak Jesus. We don't speak Buddha. Y'all don't speak Buddha, correct? You don't speak Muhammad. You don't speak Hare Krishna. No, we speak Jesus. It's not, so faith is not the virtue. And you could be the most faithful person on the planet and be in error. And so the substance is important. When the truth is declared, there will be effects. And you may think that that could be offensive. Paul wasn't offensive as a person. No, 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 no. Paul, the, the, truth, the truth claims that he said, those were not ear-tickling claims. And that, those, those truths, because darkness hates light. And so many times people don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear you rationalize for them the way they behave. So Paul was offensive because of what he said. And I would imagine that a lot of you would probably say, look, Ed, I don't want to, I don't want to offend anybody. Like, I, I just, I'll just be quiet. Like, if I don't say anything, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in error. I'm not espousing falsehoods. But, like, I don't want to offend anybody. And I would say, well, sometimes maybe you got to offend somebody. Sometimes you got to stir the pot, not for just pot-stirring reasons, not for causing trouble to cause trouble. Speak the truth. Sometimes you got to rattle the chain a little bit. Sometimes you got to lead people to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will do the convicting. Me and you don't do the convicting. I look in the mirror all the time, and I say, golly, man, that guy in that mirror is an idiot. That's the Holy Spirit convicting me. Like what I thought that morning, what I did the day before, whatever it is, I'm like, that guy, like, you know better. Like, Ed, you know better. Now, sometimes the Lord uses Susan to do that, but, but, it's, but it would be the Lord using Susan, not Susan using Susan. But most time it's not. Most time it's just the, the Holy Spirit just getting down on me and just like, God, you know better. Why'd you think that? Why'd you do that? Why'd you say that? Sometimes, and the Lord is, and, and the Lord, the, the Holy Spirit will use you to lead people into, and then He will convict them of their sin, lead them to the cross, and save them at the cross. But I'll say this too sometimes you got to make waves inside the Christian community because complacency sets in and people get lazy. And the Lord doesn't have for Christians to sit around and twiddle our thumbs. None of us will ever get to a place where we can be a people that can turn the world upside down for Christ if we're just sitting around and doing nothing and saying nothing. Now, obviously, I, I, I think it's obvious. 
and I don't mean to be ugly, and I don't mean to be obnoxious, and I don't mean to be nasty, and I don't mean to be unloving, but I do mean that we got to address stuff head on with the lost world and in, inside the, under the umbrella of Christendom. We got to address things head on. Just because I don't agree with you doesn't mean I hate you and you're supposed to hate me. Don't buy that lie. That's the lie that Washington espouses constantly. We should be, as adult Christian people, we should be mature enough, decent enough, that we can disagree and it's okay. It's okay. Now, if we disagree that Jesus is God, it's probably a little bit of a problem, but it still doesn't mean I hate you. It doesn't. When we're out on the streets serving the homeless community, you think if somebody shows up and they're Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or Jewish that we say, oops, no chicken for you? Like, no. I don't want to drive people away from the cross. We don't need to be mean. We don't need to be offensive, but we got to address, we got to have the courage and the substance to address stuff that needs to be addressed. You know, if you're a missionary, if you're an evangelist, and I would say this, if you're a Christ follower, you're a missionary and you're an evangelist. Amen. Don't say, well, pastor, that's your job. Don't even. Like, don't even say that. So if you're a Christ follower and you find yourself in a synagogue in Thessalonica or in Berea or in this room or at work or at Walmart or at Target or at Publix, or walk in your neighborhood with your dog. What do you think the issue that needs to be addressed is? What do you think the issue is? The issue is who the Messiah is. The issue is not do we sprinkle or do we dunk. The issue is not can you lose your salvation or can you not lose your salvation. The issue is not the color of the carpet. The issue is not I love volunteers. The issue is not who's leading the parking team and who's leading the, the, the uh, trail tots and the trail kids and the men's ministry. And the men no, the issue is who is the Messiah? Who is he? For Jews, think about it. Major component, major stumbling block for Jews is the fact that he died. Because a dead Messiah makes no sense, right? There's a little bit of truth in that because a dead Messiah that stays dead makes no sense. But the issue is that he had to die and be raised to life. So if that's the issue, what you reckon Paul was going to talk about? Is he going to talk, Paul going to talk about the weather? Paul going to talk about the Georgia-Tennessee game? Paul going to talk about the midterms. No, he's not. He's going to talk about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what, Paul, that's what he always talked about. He, I, Paul did not talk about systematic theology. Paul didn't bust out Grudem's big systematic theology, but no. Paul said a dead guy went in the grave and a live guy came out. Y'all, Paul talked about the gospel. He talked about Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Like, that's, that's us. That's what we ought to be doing. 
Verse 2 says that he, re, verse 2 of chapter 17, says that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, that he laid out a case. Well, what's the case he laid out? He laid out a case that, that it was necessary for Jesus to suffer, die, and rise from the dead. And that word reason mean that, that means that there was dialogue. There was dialogue, there was discussion, and there was debate, and there was questions, and, and there was answers. It wasn't a one-way thing. It wasn't Paul just preaching a sermon and then being quiet. No, they questioned and he answered. Later on, Peter, the apostle Peter, he said that you and I should be able to give a reason for the hope that lives inside of us. You should be, a, if you're a Christ follower, if you name the name of Jesus and you are saved, you should be able to give a, a reason for the hope that lives inside of you, because you know hope is what lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit ushers in at the moment of salvation into you. He ushers in hope. And you should be able to give a reason and a defense of that. We should be able to do that with accurate and truthful and relevant content. And I'm not saying that you've got to go get a master of theology. Lord knows I ain't saying that. Paul reasoned with them for three Sabbaths in a row. He always did it that way. Authentic evangelism. Effectively sharing the gospel is a defensible presentation of Christianity. Does that make sense to you? And that was some big churchy words. But authentic evangelism is a defensible presentation of walking with Christ. I defend my, what I believe and why I believe it. That's real evangelism. It's being able to stand firm and defend what you believe and why you believe what you believe. And it is super cool that with Paul, the evidence is all over Scripture. With Paul, they never really were Paul's words or Paul's emotions or Paul's experiences or, 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 or Paul's feelings. Typically, it's what verse 2 says. Paul reasoned with them from what? The Scriptures. From the Bible, Paul reasoned with them from Isaiah 53. Paul reasoned with them from, from Psalm 16, from Psalm 22, from Jeremiah 31. There's going to be a new covenant written 700 years before this. He reasoned with them from Isaiah 7. He reasoned with them from Genesis 3. He reasoned with them from all over the left side of this book because that's what existed at the time. He defended the Christ from the Old Testament. We, we should be able to point back and use the Scriptures. Because if I use just Ed's word, I'll fail. And that maybe I got some good thoughts. But I'm not going to use Ed's words and Ed's mind. And No, I'm, I'm using Scripture. It's God's word. I'm using Scripture. That's what Paul did. So, so, so Paul was about courage boldness and then substance and, and content. Paul was a black and white dude about stuff. He presented tr the truth claims that Scripture makes about Jesus as the Christ and he defended it. That joker knew the Bible. If you're going to be somebody that wants to make waves that turns the world upside down for Christ, you ought to know the Word. I'm not telling you you've got to be a scholar but when you go to study Leviticus 13, 
Raise your hand if you study Leviticus. You're a liar if you raise your hand. But if you go to study Leviticus 13, does your hand go on the shelf to the commentary on Leviticus 13 first or the Bible first? I would say often people's hands go to the commentary. Commentary is not inspired. Commentaries are great. I read them all the time. But the commentary is not the inspired word of God. The Bible is. Use a commentary. But read the passage in Scripture ten times in a row before you grab the commentary. Paul reasoned from the Scriptures. you gotta, you got to dig into the Word of God. If you can give people answers, answers that, that make sense to them, biblical answers, relevant answers, answers that you can defend with the Word of God and with your life, then you got something. And you may be saying to yourself right now, like, okay, I, I, like I want to do that, just I don't know how. Dig into the Bible. Like, read it constantly. Study it head first. And there's not any shortcuts. Lord knows I wish there were shortcuts. And let me say this. Every time you pick up the Scriptures, every time before you open, before you, when you get to here, before you do that, pray. And I'm talking about a 10-second prayer. Pray, Lord, today when I pick up your Word, Lord, I'm begging you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would, would light up the text for me, that your Holy Spirit would allow me to understand it the way that you, Lord, intend for me to understand it. I'm talking about 10 seconds. Do it every single time you pick up a Bible. I'm telling you it'll make a difference. Dig in. Study it. And then, and then contextualize the Word into your own life. You will be effective. Truth is, you'll be super effective teaching other people about the things that you have learned through your own life, through your own walk. If I study Scripture and I just write down some stuff on a piece of paper and teach it to you, well, that's one thing, and that's very likely going to be this academic kind of thing. But if I teach you and I talk to you and you talk to me, about the things that, that God is doing. And I talk to you about the things that God's doing in my life and the way that it lines up with Scripture. Well, that's a whole different thing. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says this. He says to be transformed by the renewal of your arm. Is that what he says? No. He says be transformed by the renewal of your noodle, of your mind. Think about what he's saying there. That has to mean that the renewal of my mind results in the transformation of my entire life, my heart. And in the, in the, in the ancient Hebrew mind, if you could back up 2,000 years, 3,000 years, the way that they understood things, the heart and the mind are inextricably linked together. The heart even was often thought of as the seat of thought. But if my mind gets renewed, then my heart gets transformed. That's exactly the way it had to work out for me personally. Think about it. When I can share with somebody that my that the Lord renewed my mind, changed my heart, I'm now a new creation. When I can share that with somebody, 
That's going to make waves. It just is. It's going to make waves. Last thing, you, you may, like a whole slug of folks probably, say I'll share all of that stuff as soon as I learn enough. That's nonsense, y'all. I don't even know what enough could actually mean. Dig in to his word. Start talking about it. While you're learning, start talking about it. While you're digging in, start talking about it. While you're learning, start talking about it. While people are talking to you, you start talking about it. And you start digging in. And you study and you share and you learn and you talk. There's no better way to learn than to teach. I'll tell you this in transparency, y'all. The, I learned this lesson in the last four, personally, in the last four or five weeks with the Gospel of John. And frankly, transparently, I have never dug in really and done a deep, deep word-for-word study of the Gospel of John until now because I'm teaching it. We spent a month, maybe five weeks, on the first nine verses of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John at 6.30 in the morning on Wednesday mornings. And yes, I know that's in the middle of the night for most of y'all. But I'm telling you, I've learned more about the Gospel of John in four or five weeks than I have in ten years because I dug in and people questioned and I questioned and we talked. That dialogue is awesome. See, all I told you up front today that there are five things that define the folks that can turn the world topsy-turvy. Today we talked about courage and we talked about substance. Next Sunday we're going to talk about the last three. So let me tell you what I, what I believe that we see here. We see Paul and Silas were accused of turning the world upside down. They're accused of causing a thunderstorm in Europe. The early Christians really, really, really had a reputation. Well, the facts are the power of the gospel revolutionized lives. The power of the gospel broke down social barriers, throws open prison doors, caused people to care deeply for each other, stirs hearts up to worship the one who spoke everything into existence. Let me tell you, the world that we live in today needs a little upside-down turning. I could probably say the world that we live in today desperately needs to be turned upside down. And at the core, at the core, the gospel is not about some new programs in some church somewhere that encourages good conduct. At the core, the gospel's not as, as wonderful as our homeless ministry is. It's not about that. Like, it's not about this Bible study and that Bible study. It's not. It is about radically and dynamically transforming lives. That's why I just love that, that Romans 12. I just love it. Because when your mind gets renewed, your life changes. Do y'all know, and I have a friend who honestly is struggling with sexual addiction right now. And I talked to him yesterday for almost two hours on the phone. And I said, bro, do you know that over the last whatever amount of time, 
the physical shape of your mind has changed. The physical shape of your brain has changed. It looks different today than it did 15 years ago. Physically looks different. I said, bro, you got to renew your mind. You got to hit your knees and your mind has to be renewed. And I said, when your mind is renewed, your heart is going to change. It's going to change. And it ain't going to be easy. And, and you cannot absolutely not do it alone. I said, but, but when your mind is renewed, your life is going to be transformed. Do you all get that? What a radical truth that Scripture makes. I was lost and now I'm found. Like, what a truth that is. I was, I was blind 23 years ago. I was as blind. Somebody give me a metaphor for blind. I was as blind as Lonnie Freeman. And today, today I'm, I can see. I mean, it's just the most amazing thing. It's an inexplicable thing. And we... We so deserve nothing. We deserve not well, we deserve death, I guess. So today, y'all, and everybody's wired up differently. For me personally, I had to pick up a Bible 23 years ago, and I, and I'm saying this, I, I hate to say it that way, but I needed, I thought, I needed to believe that every single word was one 100% true and accurate and inerrant and infallible, and I never would have used those words. I just, if I could, I was trying to pick it apart, and I was trying to find the error. And as soon as I was going to find an error, I was going to say, see, Lonnie, you're a liar because there's errors and there's contradictions and all. Well, guess what? It is inerrant, and it is infallible, and it is 100% truth. And I, for me personally, it took that in my head, my mind was renewed, and three months later on January 17th, the heart transplant took place, and I understood what freedom really looked like, and I understood what hope really looked like, and I understood what peace really looked like, and I understood what joy really looked like. I understood what Jesus-empowered love for my wife looked like. Y'all, that's what happens when your heart changes. And he would have for us to have the courage infused by love, not the courage to be a jerk and an idiot. No. But the courage that is infused by love to be bold for him. Not to be bold to be bold, to be bold for the sake of Christ. That's what he has for me and you. But you can't do that. You can't do that if he's not living inside of you. I mean, you can't do that if you don't have a, a relationship with him. You go back to the, uh, to the Old Testament. You look at what, what happened. You know, in the Old Testament, you had this drapery around the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant was in there. The Hebrews believed absolutely that God's, that was God's hanging out place. There was a top of that Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. 
that God's very presence hovered over that. And when the high priest would go in there once a year, they'd tie a rope around his ankle so if he croaked while he was in there, they could pull his dead body out because nobody else could go in there. Y'all, the, 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 the power and the, the unbelievableness of what happened when Jesus died on that cross, the earth shook. He says it's finished. What does the Bible say? Jesus said it's finished, and he says he breathed his last. And what happened? That veil in that temple, excuse me, in the Holy of Holies, that drapery split in half. That didn't just happen randomly. Like, really? No. You and I get to go into the very presence of the creator of the universe. We don't need no priest. We don't need to get in some confession box and confess my dumbness to some priest. No, I get to go into the Holy of Holies with the one that breathed life into me. Y'all, that's the most unbelievable thing ever. You get access to pure holiness. There is nothing like that. Me and you, broken, fallen, and anything we bring is a filthy rag. But we get to take our filthy rags into purity and holiness, and there he will meet us. He will meet us. He's not going to say no. You cry out to be saved, he's going to say, no, only do that on Tuesdays and Thursdays. No, no, no. You cry out to be saved, he's never said no to anybody. He will say yes, and you will experience freedom like you never experienced. So I'm telling you, if you're listening to this, if you're here in this building, and that's just never happened, I want to encourage you. Like, I would encourage you to do it right this very moment. But for sure, please don't go to sleep tonight. Let your head hit the pillow. Having not considered that offer to enter into the Holy of Holies yourself. You may sit here today and think your whole life you thought you've been saved because mom and them took you to church your whole life. Well, you can't have mom and them's belief. Wonderful that mom and them took you to church, but mama can't believe for you. Daddy can't believe for you. You got to, you got to do that yourself. And you may be sitting here thinking you're, a, you're some wheat and you're a tear. And maybe the Lord's convicted you of that today. I don't know. But don't go to sleep tonight without considering that offer. I'm begging you. And if you're here today and you are a believer and you've been walking with the Lord for 20 years, dig into his word and affect the world for him. Y'all pray with me. Lord, we love you today and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way, Lord, that you have protected your word over the last 3,500 years. Get it to, down to us in the 21st century, inerrant and infallible. Lord, you breathed life into the Word. You breathe life, Lord, into us. And Lord, my prayer is somebody here today, and there is no doubt that there are some buddies here today that do not know you. And Lord, let me just make it black and white. If you don't know Him today, you gotta, you got to admit you got to acknowledge, you got to accept the fact that you are a sinner, that you have a bent 
and inclination towards bad. You got to admit that. You got to repent of that. Turn away from it and turn towards Him. And you're not going to be perfect in that, but turn away from it. Turn towards Him. Go the other way. And believe as sure as we're all standing in this room that He died on a cross and it took care of all of that sin that wasn't really His to take care of. Died a physical death, thrown in a grave, completely dead, and came out completely alive. Cry out to Him to save you, and He will. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all, if you need prayer or if you want to talk about what we just talked about, we've got a little prayer station right there. We've got somebody would love to pray with you. I would love to pray with you. I would invite you to the, down to the cross if you've got something to dump. Dump it right there and let it go.